0: Hello, welcome to episode two of the Unexamined Partial. In this episode, we're looking at Ludwig van Beethoven. This basically is a logical follow-up to looking at composers who have gigantic reputations in the canon of Western classical music. We looked at J.S. Bach in episode one, and we just thought we'd tag-team these gigantic, they're bigger than gigantic, they're just huge figures of music, just so we can exhaust ourselves... Um, thoroughly in these first two episodes and then we'll go into lighter music like Poulank or something like that just to kind of... (laughs) Let's call them
1: colossal figures, too. Colossal is the word I was looking at. We're looking for
0: like kind of deities of Western music history. So briefly, an overview of what the Unexamined Partial is about. Yeah, we are looking at classical musical traditions. We are starting with the Western classical music tradition and probably going to be focused here for a long time because it's there's a lot to cover. But the idea is that we're kind of open to what classical music is in various contexts, That's why we're looking at Beethoven today. But in this episode, we're also going to be doing our best not to do things like name drop. And if we do name drop, we try to explain what we're talking about, either by way of like a quick audio sample that we'll add in post-production or by just talking about what we're talking about and explaining who we're talking about. The main point also is to make these conversations fun, enlivening, educational, we're just trying to provide information that's accessible. So it's not necessarily a conversation that's going to be geared towards professional musicians, although professional musicians will get something out of it. But we're also kind of looking to broaden the scope of accessibility of classical music by talking about it in a kind of natural and fun way, hopefully. So with that said, we'll also explain terms like, modulation. What the hell does modulation mean? Because you might not know it, whereas a professional musician might go, oh god, modulation. They're explaining modulation. But again, we're going to try to do this in a quick and fun way. Okay, I'm Graham Flett, and I'm doing my best not to be patétique while talking about Beethoven.
2: This is Justin being rather utopian in Langley, BC, Canada.
1: This is Emlyn Stamm. Overwhelmed and awed by the power of the great master in Den Haag, the Netherlands. So
2: what did we look at for this episode?
0: It was Charles Rosen. Yeah. Classical style is the name of the book. That is right. Correct. Chapter one, the musical language of the late 18th century. And then we looked at chapter two, theories of form. I don't know what chapter it was. It just says the origins of style. And I have no page numbers in my PDF, so I don't know where it but it's in that book. And then we looked at an essay by Susan McClary from her book Conventional Wisdom, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. And it's on Beethoven, Schnittke, and... No, that's the other, No, no, that's... It's, I believe it's uh,
2: classical music, postmodern knowledge.
0: Okay, classical music, postmodern knowledge. And then also we looked at one other reading. What was it? Uh, Adorno, of course. We have to look at Adorno for every episode.
2: No. I'm quite mistaken. The book we read from was Lawrence Kramer's Interpreting Music. Lawrence Kramer's Interpreting Music. And
0: the Adorno was what?
2: Beethoven, the philosophy of music.
0: And we read just the first chapter of it, or we were supposed to read the whole book
2: and I didn't? Oh, yes. I mean, chapter seven was especially great. You're joking, right? (laughs) I, I detect
0: that. You're lampooning me. No, I, I mean, I just read the first chapter and I thought there was...
2: The idea was that I thought there was enough material in the first chapter to lead to a yeah. healthy discussion. I think there's some really nice things in this book.
0: Okay. Shall we just do the bio? Because this guy's big,
1: man. I mean, obviously we have to focus on the interesting things that happen in his life, right? Not the boring things.
0: It's all interesting. The guy reads like... A romantic novel, perhaps? Romantic novel, Yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, the pieces that we sort of might be structuring this thing around. So, Emelin, you want to take that away?
1: Well, we agreed to focus on his third symphony, the one with the nickname the Eroica Symphony. And we also thought, by way of contrast, we'd look at one of his late great works, which was very controversial when he wrote it, which was the Grosse Fuge, the Great Fugue, opus 133, originally meant to be the last movement of his string quartet, opus 130. And published separately because it was so it was seen as unsellable by his
2: publisher. Yeah, unsellable.
0: Just too bizarre for
2: Yeah. Well maybe perhaps too dark. They were looking for the fifth movement to give them a happy ending and Beethoven wasn't willing to provide that.
0: Is it not the sixth movement or am I wrong?
2: It is the sixth movement, sorry.
0: Oh yeah, we also did look a little bit at an audio presentation that's available or accessible on YouTube. By Leonard Bernstein, who, who has a kind of fun way of walking you through the Eroica Symphony, and it's like, one, two, three, one, two,
3: three! One of the basic elements is his meter. The whole movement goes in rapid groups of three one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, and so on. And the basic stress is naturally on one one, two, three, one, two, three, like a waltz. But now we are suddenly hit by displaced accents. A kind of syncopation which makes the music go one, two, three, one, two, three, instead of the normal one, two, three, one, two,
1: three.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's actually hilarious.
1: It's so unbelievably dated when you hear it nowadays. With... And
0: it also, I mean, I like it, but it is it is so dated. And it also has this kind of a aspect of it that it really bothers me the way... There's the vocabulary he uses to describe Beethoven makes it sound so pretentious. that like, Please stop. But... Anyway, we'll look at that a little bit too. So, okay, to get started with the biography of Ludwig van Beethoven... Beethoven, Ludwig van Beethoven, was born in 1770. Beethoven is actually a Flemish name. His granddad was Ludwig van Beethoven, who was also a musician and someone who moved from Mechelen in Belgium to Bonn, Germany, early in his adult life. And Beethoven's granddad had a son named Johann van Beethoven, who also became a musician, who was a singer, in fact. And he married Maria Magdalena Keverich, who was the daughter of the head chef to the bishopric of Trier. I mention this background only to show that the Beethoven we know was not of royal blood. He pretty much came from a line of musicians and cooks who were basically servants. And his father basically was also uh, his first teacher. And Beethoven, growing up in Bonn, or as a child in Bonn, showed an early aptitude for music, learning piano as well as violin and viola, who received instruction from a relative and family friend. And whether it's true or not, Beethoven's father is reputed to have been a pretty ferocious teacher insisting the boy stand at the keyboard while practicing, and there are tales of young Ludwig being in tears while he practiced. Regardless of the approaches taken to teach uh, Beethoven, he was without a doubt a child prodigy, and his father even tried to capitalize on him in the same way that Leopold Mozart had done with Wolfgang. Mozart doesn't seem to have had the same effect or led to the same success that happened with Mozart. What did happen though was that by the time Beethoven was nine years old he was an accomplished enough musician to begin studying with Christian Gottlob Neyfa and Neyfa was an important influence on the young Beethoven helping him with his first forays into the world of composition as well. His first three piano sonatas were published with Neyfa's help. And Beethoven's talents with composition also caught the attention of Elector Maximilian Frederick. Maximilian became Beethoven's first sponsor, subsidizing his musical studies, and he was an important contact. Eventually, his son, Maximilian Franz, became the successor to the position of Electorate of Bonn. And through this connection, Beethoven also encountered basically Enlightenment philosophy on a f- sort of firsthand level, the effect being that he benefited from the increased support for education and interest in the arts. It's also likely, too, that Nafa's affiliations with the local chapter of the Order of Illuminati influenced Beethoven on a political and philosophical level as well, into his teenage years and throughout his life. He might have carried that sort of initial influence with him. It's reported that when Beethoven was 16... He made his first trip to the grand old city of Vienna. This was in hopes that he might meet the famous Mozart and arrange to study with him. It's unclear if these two giants of Western music ever met, but there are stories. There was a biographer of Beethoven who had this story about Mozart going, oh, that young man's got some talent, you know, but basically they're unsubstantiated. Beethoven's time in Vienna was, however, cut short. And we do know that for sure, because he had to return Bonn for his mother's funeral. And after this point, his father really took to the bottle and became a severe alcoholic. And the consequence of this was that Beethoven, being the eldest child, was forced then to look after his two younger brothers for the next five years. Though being back in Bonn wasn't so bad for Beethoven because he was, one, able to acquire some awareness of things like German and classical literature, And also during that time, he met some important contacts. One being Count Ferdinand von Waldstein.
3: Waldstein.
0: Waldstein, thank you. Who became a lifelong friend and financial supporter.
1: We all recognize his name from the Waldstein Sonata.
0: Opus 53.
1: There you go. Um.
0: And Emmeline, you know, he played viola in the local orchestra, and yeah. he, yeah, and he did this just to, again, bring in more money.
1: Yeah, it seems like he played viola in the opera orchestra when they did several productions of Mozart's
2: operas.
0: Yeah. Ah. So he was well familiar with the operatic repertoire
2: of Mozart as well. Some people found that uh, Beethoven was incorporating a lot of opera things from classical period into his music. which further pushed Romantic notions of the Romantic style. This is taking from opera into instrumental music.
0: 1789, there was a long-awaited legal decree that basically ordered Beethoven's father that uh, he had to give half of his salary to his son, to Ludwig, and that sort of took some pressure off Beethoven.
1: But that was also because he spent all of his salary on alcohol and didn't look after the younger siblings of Beethoven. So Beethoven could use that salary from his father to help look after his brothers.
0: Yeah, so he didn't have to work as much finally, and he could kind of pursue his own things. Basically a pretty difficult sort of early adulthood that Beethoven had. Certainly. And really, yeah, like had to deal with a lot of responsibility. While he was still in Bonn, he made some plans to study in Vienna with Mozart. But unfortunately, Mozart's death obviously changed this and instead he made plans then to study with Josef Haydn.
1: When Haydn travelled through Bonn on his way to London and back he had met Haydn and that seems to be the point at which it was arranged that he would go to Vienna to study with Haydn.
0: Yeah. So they met first in seventeen ninety in Bonn and then later they met again in seventeen ninety two because that was the year Beethoven
1: moved that's also the year that Haydn came back from London. He'd spent two years there. Of course, we'll get deeply into that when we do our three part triptych episodes on Haydn. We're going to do
0: three episodes on just Haydn.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, okay. He did write
0: a lot of music, For... so maybe. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Tune in next week.
1: Sort of skipped over Mozart and Haydn. It's true. You know, on a rush to, you know, get to John Cage or wherever we're going. and
2: I think the idea more is that we're not trying to look at it linearly, but we are trying to piece together right. things just for the, the listener. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We could just basically tell people that we have a gigantic dice with every composer's name on it and we just roll it.
2: Either that or we should start with Pythagoras and go forward. <laughs>
0: Ptolemy. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, we're going to be talking a lot about Mozart and Haydn probably in this episode, but they're no doubt composers. We will come back and do episodes about in the future.
0: I believe that Mozart is more known in a way. We can maybe just justify skipping them over. (laughs) Never mind. I'm not going to say that. (laughs) To edit that out. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. Okay. Where was I with this bio thing? Well, let me
1: correct myself from last episode when I conflated... Wilhelm Friedman and Johann Christian Bach into Johann Friedman Bach. That was my opinion of Bach's sons were were such poor composers that I considered two of them to be virtually the same person.
2: <laughs> well, somebody has an opinion.
0: of war on its way from France and that's also something you kind of keep in perspective with the biography of Beethoven that there was a lot of social turmoil and political unrest happening in Europe at the time and in 1792 he moved to Vienna and at this point Beethoven did not immediately set out to establish himself as a composer in Vienna but devoted himself to study and performance.
1: We have to mention the very famous thing that Count Waldstein said to Beethoven of course in a letter when he had sent him off to Vienna with a few ducats in his pocket to pay for his studies.
0: You are going to Vienna in fulfillment of your
2: long frustrated wishes. You will receive the spirit of Mozart from the hands of Haydn.
0: But anyway, yeah, Beethoven got there and he was performing And also sought to master counterpoint He studied violin and also
1: studied with Antonio Salieri Salieri, for those of you who don't remember, is the bad guy in the movie Amadeus The one who supposedly killed Mozart He's the bad, frustrated composer
2: And movies, as we all know, are completely true, so you know
3: I speak for all mediocrities in the world I am their champion I am their patron
1: saint. Always, always trust Hollywood. Do you know
0: that they actually had to make Salieri's music sound worse for that movie than it did? Because when they performed it, they're like, oh, actually, this stuff isn't so bad. Oh, that's right. You know, a lot of people studied with him and came in contact with him, including Beethoven. And also he studied counterpoint with Johann Albrechtsberger, who I don't know. He was also Mm -hmm. able at that time to secure financial support from a number of viennese noblemen who recognized his talents
1: and if any of you play the piano or whatever play through some of his piano sonatas you notice the dedications on the top of the music for many of the sonatas you'll see names of people like waldstein or lobkowitz or wichnowski or whoever and those are people who sponsored beethoven heavily
2: which leads to the nicknames given to the sonatas i guess
1: to some of them in any case but many of the music see opus 31 dedicated to so-and-so or whatever and Yeah. So for all those wealthy people out there if you want to have your name remembered in perpetuity you need to start commissioning pieces. Yes, exactly. From composers or sponsoring them to write music. Yeah,
0: it's not so popular that you get like the the Bill Gates Piano Sonata or something like that and it's just
1: really...
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Like Music has lost that kind of patronage.
1: Can you imagine though I mean the countless buildings that have come and gone since the Waldstein Sonata was written. That is true.
0: Yeah, it's true. I mean it's a great way to kind of immortalize yourself if the composer writes a good piece but uh, (laughs)
2: anyway but that leads into all sorts of other questions but this is not i mean this is not exactly what we're going to get into in this episode
0: basically right at this point beethoven's in his early 20s he lived until he was 56
2: oh thank goodness he didn't live a long time
0: but (laughs) beethoven established himself as a virtuoso pianist improviser and composer However, he strategically delayed the publication of his compositions so they would make a greater impact when published. This worked, actually, as his Opus 1 was a major financial success and basically covered his living expenses for a year, so not bad for... Wow. Yeah.
2: It's not bad at all.
0: And Beethoven continued to have a hot career composing six string quartets between 1798 and 1800, just, you know, six. And his first and second symphonies were premiered in 1800 and 1803. All of these works were regarded as very successful in his day. We also see works like the Pathétique, who's one of my favorite piano sonatas, and his septet appearing around this time. he became regarded as the most important of a generation of young composers following in the footsteps of haydn and mozart and by 1800 that's when he was 30 his music was much in demand from patrons and publishers all over europe he also taught some very important musicians who in turn went on to have their own successful careers so insert here names like carl Czerny. however another one of his students was a young lady and she became a love interest and the possible recipient of this mortal beloved letter that he wrote a decade later. He has three people that he sort of uh, serious affections for, and they all turned him down. And it's important because they turned him down often on issues of class. Julieta wow. Giacardi couldn't be with him due to class differences. Then also Therese Malfatti, you know, Fioriliste. That was also written for her, and she's, yeah, again, class differences. He was a commoner, so they couldn't be married. So in conjunction with his hot career is like the fact that he can't find an interesting woman
1: that he wants to marry. Or It's interesting in the broader context of social change happening in Europe at that time, because you have this feudalistic system where you have a division between nobility and the bourgeois classes, of which Beethoven would have been a part of as an, a successful composer and musician. And the fact that he wanted to be able to bridge this distance but was unable to due to the sort of stringent class restrictions in place already point the way to changing philosophies about lifestyle and changing ideas about equality and so on, which are starting to arise in Europe as a result of the French Revolution and all of the upheavals that followed that.
0: So he was having some tough luck with that aspect of his life, but I mean, his career was going really well. But then there was this irritating problem. One that he couldn't really ignore anymore, and this was the fact that, as we all know, Beethoven was slowly going deaf. He began suffering from tinnitus or tinnitus at age 26, losing the ability to hear high frequencies first, and this led to him having difficulty in social situations. To try and cope with the problem, he moved to a small town outside of Vienna, and while there, he wrote letters to his brother indicating that he was in a state of despair, even suicidal at times, but in the end he managed to muster up the strength and basically decided to persevere with his art despite his hearing loss. However, the hearing loss did steadily increase over the next few decades, and the first problem that this loss of hearing caused Beethoven was that it ended his performance career, uh, which was a very lucrative source of income for him. His last performance was in 1812, and it ended really badly, basically in, in public embarrassment, because he, he couldn't...
1: Wasn't that the performance where he was playing his fifth piano concerto yep. and he just got lost, or he he got he was completely lost with the orchestra? And...
0: Yeah, he was either ahead or behind of the orchestra and... Because he couldn't hear the orchestra. Yeah. And wow. he basically, after that, he vowed never to publicly perform again.
2: If you can imagine, just for a second, how loud an orchestra is, and if you're sitting at a piano directly in front of them and you can't hear them, that's already, I would say, significant hearing loss.
0: Yeah. His hearing gradually disappeared, and it was clear by 1814 that he was profoundly deaf, basically only able to hear low sounds.
2: So we know that he sawed off the legs of his piano and would often put his head underneath. Do you have any idea of when this might have happened?
0: It sounds kind of like in the early 1800s.
2: Yet yeah, there's
1: also the story about Napoleon bombing Vienna in... Yeah, 1809 and Beethoven covering his ears with pillows and hiding in the basement yeah. to protect his hearing from being totally destroyed yeah by the, the sound of the bombs yeah. and the cannons cannonballs I guess at that time
0: what's amazing about Beethoven is that he's losing his hearing but on the flip side he's going through the most prolific time in his career this is known as the middle period or the heroic period and this is when he wrote pieces like the Eroica Symphony which is the third symphony And this piece received mixed reviews at the time because it basically pushed the limits of what a symphony had been known to be. Many people declared it a masterpiece immediately, but there was a lot of debate. And then other pieces, too, were the Fifth Symphony, um, which is really well-known and has this very heroic quality. (laughs) ¶¶ other works coming from this middle period of uh, the Waldstein and Appassionata Piano Sonatas and his one and only opera Fidelio the harp and Sirioso string quartets and symphonies three to eight <laughs> it's like oh my god yeah. so during all of this though Beethoven was growing more and more deaf and add to this that there was this constant backdrop of very serious political fallout the Napoleonic Wars were between 1803 and 1815 and they were a constant social disruption to normal life and imagine artistic life even. So
2: I just have a question about the symphony. So as we notice in the middle period, he wrote from symphony three to eight and then only nine during his final period and largely focused on chamber works. Do you think this has something to do with his hearing loss, how he changed his focus? Or do you think there's another reason why he was moving his output?
0: I don't think so because the big piece that's... Actually, in preparing for this podcast that I really discovered more about was Misa Solemnis, which is a massive mass that he wrote. <laughs> orchestral works and for instance Symphony Number no. 8 is actually it's pretty short
2: yes it's considered by many his classical symphony although I mean in some ways it's also his most revolutionary form wise
0: because it modulates all over the place <laughs>
2: Throw in the words "fate knocking on the door" for the Fifth Symphony. Yes, the
0: dun, 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 dun. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, from about 1811 to 1813, though, this is when Beethoven had some health problems and also became personally involved in his brother's financial affairs and personal life. And there's a whole legal drama that unfolded here. Yeah. Basically, Beethoven wanted to stop his brother from marrying a woman. There was a legal action, and Beethoven ended up losing a lot of money, being pretty much broke after it. And around 1813, Beethoven's... This is when you sort of get the caricature of Beethoven as being sort of unruly, irascible, kind of... Cantankerous. Cantankerous composer with, you know, big hair or something like that, but... This sort of unwashed, un-
1: half-shaven, slovenly appearance.
0: Apparently prior to that, though, Beethoven was a pretty clean-cut guy, so that's where everyone's like, "Well, what's happened to Ludwig, you know? So... I mean, it's just also often you see with deaf people, they get a little isolated. and He started to become more productive after 1813, but he went through a, bit, a two-year drought after that massive decade of, of being extremely prolific. And in 1814, he revised his opera Fidelio and also wrote his only song cycle.
1: An die ferne Geliebte
3: so below
0: Thank you, my German
1: sucks. Actually, this we should talk a little bit about this period because Rosen had a very interesting point of view about these few years in that he said, in this period, it seems to him that Beethoven almost exhausted his expansion of his previous classical roots and that he was searching for some sort of new forms in these sorts of pieces. So works like Undiferne Geliebte and this enormous Wellington's Victory Overture, which he composed after one of the victories of Wellington over Napoleon... Point the way towards the more romantic composers that came after Beethoven, like Schumann and Berlioz and so on. They take up this element from Beethoven's work rather than what he wrote after this period, when he sort of went back to his more rooted classical
0: tools. I mean, and definitely in an orchestration, Wellington's victory is a bit unique because it's the only piece of his that uses cannons and fireworks. But actually, this piece was a hit.
1: It was huge.
0: performed a lot and has definitely in its programmatic sense too it was a big influence that I can see
1: did you guys know that there's still a tradition in the United Kingdom somewhere every year where they do a performance of Wellington's victory with everyone dressed up in period costumes and cannons and stuff like that
2: Ah, uh, yes
0: that's awesome
1: I
2: do know about this because I've seen photographs
1: it's like a civil war reenactment type of thing for America (laughs) or whatever but they do this with this bombastic Beethoven piece and my favorite thing about Wellington's victory is that I don't know who it was but one of the major music critics in Vienna totally panned the piece in his review he said it was just nonsense and it was just sort of designed to please the masses and there was nothing good about it Beethoven wrote a letter to this critic in which he said what I shit is better than what you have ever thought of.
3: <laughs>
0: oh, that's great. It's like a parasitic, <laughs> I don't know, sort of leech on the whole you know, back of music. Anyway, between 1815 and 1817, again, his output dropped. Causes stemmed from just, again, having some unsuccessful luck with amorous relations that he was trying to pursue and also dealing with the harsh censorship of the Austrian government. At this time, it was a bit like a police state. And the death of his brother Karl also happened at that point. And Karl was helping Beethoven a lot with contacting publishers and dealing with the logistic side of being a composer. The death of his brother Karl also led to a serious custody battle over his nephew, who was also named Karl, but spelt with a K. And this drawn-out drama ensued between Ludwig and the boy's mother, Joanna. Beethoven was basically of the opinion that she wasn't fit to look after him because she had loose morals and she was once convicted of stealing something. And, And so Beethoven was determined to get full custody of the child, and he took this issue to the Royal Austrian Court and basically claimed that he was von Beethoven and not von Beethoven. But eventually they found out that this was not actually so, and that uh, they kicked him out of court, but then he appealed, and eventually he got permission of this boy, Carl, and Beethoven had full custody and looked after him for about 10 years, oh. but it's basically, I don't think Beethoven was really... The most attentive father, or he was a very strict father, and uh, Carl actually attempted suicide in 1826. And then he survived this episode and then decided to go back and live with his mother. But that's as close to fatherhood as Beethoven ever got. Right around 1818, this is kind of when we can discern that this is when people say that Beethoven's late works begin.
2: Maybe this is a good point to mention. Something that Rosen said about the periods, they're very helpful for trying to start work at looking at Beethoven and his works. But in the end, there are no clear boundaries. We shouldn't really try to break up Beethoven and question also why perhaps he had three periods. Many works go across boundaries. In fact, uh, this I think is something that we'll see a few times through today's episode is that he was another boundary crosser.
0: Yeah, they talk about this heroic period, right? And then there's the symphony number six is the pastoral, which is very not heroic. It's just pastoral. Now I want to talk about the late period, or the late works. This wasn't as prolific as the middle period, but I mean, we're talking about Beethoven, so he still wrote a lot of music. The works grouped into being late works are the five piano sonatas that he wrote, the Diabelli variations.
1: <laughs> Which are a funny piece, because Diabelli was this rather more mediocre kind of italian keyboardist and composer he took this ridiculous theme that diabelli had written a kind of little minuet thing very simplistic and he expanded that to a 60 minute keyboard piece with all kinds of wild variations just to sort of show how he could master even the most banal material and
0: so the diabelli variations were pretty sportive
1: i don't know if they're sportive because they're quite there's quite a lot of musical depth there as well it's not just sort of uh, thumbing his nose at the guy, there's certainly some of that too, I think, but it's a serious composition I mean, it's an hour it takes close to an hour, I think, in most performances
0: Yeah, it seems like most works in this later period are pretty substantial there he did have to write some works just to kind of make money so he has some bagatelles that he published so he, he published smaller piano pieces
1: but I don't think you can write those off also as just making money I mean those are also quite profound pieces even though they're a couple of minutes each
0: yeah they're serious bagatelles yeah exactly works that he wrote during this time were Mises Solemnis, which was a Mass, and the Ninth Symphony, which pretty much I can assume that all of us know, or know it to hear it. <laughs> ¶¶ One of the main historical points musicologists note also about this period is that Beethoven started to take more of a fondness for fugues. And this was also
1: associated with his getting
0: more familiarity with the music of Handel and
1: Bach. That I don't think is entirely true. No. It seems that he had a long-standing familiarity with the music of Bach and Handel actually going back to his childhood.
0: I wonder about that too, because it basically says that it's more like the, the complete catalog was becoming available
2: He only had access to the complete catalogue of um, Handel in the mid-1820s. A friend of his came back from London and brought it with him.
1: Uh, Of course, there's notations, all of his sketchbooks for all of his music that you can go through and study in a in-process type of way, how he wrote his pieces. Yeah. And what you can find in those sketchbooks also are leafs and sketches from the well-tempered clavier by Bach. And you can see how he's looking at how certain contrapuntal ideas were worked out in the high baroque, taking some sort of inspiration out of that for his own music. However, nowhere is it an imitation or a referential sort of quoting of that kind of music. What you see simply is that counterpoint becomes extremely important polyphony multi-voiced works with a lot happening at the same time
0: Has to do with his growing deafness that he was relying less on playing piano.
1: I think that would be a highly speculative matter. Yeah, I know. It's hard to, it's really hard to talk about it in yeah. that way because you can't get inside the mind of the person. Mm-hmm. All you can do is look at the music and see where you get with it. But what interests me, of course, is that we focus a little bit on, on the third symphony, a little bit on the great fugue here, and there are works from kind of opposite periods of his career, which are both boundary crossing works and both very unpleasant works in a way in the way they confront pleasantness of style as it would have been perceived and loved in that period of time.
0: Yeah, they're full on. (laughs) ¶¶
2: something that maybe goes back a bit. Beethoven is an exception. I think something we could mention, possibly why some people think that he was thinking more theoretically in his late works, in that many, if not most, composers in a late period start to reflect on things differently, and their style starts to step backwards. Not necessarily in a bad way. It certainly doesn't continue in advancing in the same way that Beethoven's style did through his life.
0: Yeah, late works. What did Adorno call them? The the furrowed fruit of creativity, or something. It's what the raisin is to the grape.
2: Yes. <laughs>
1: Distilled, perhaps. Yeah. I think we'll probably see that in a number of composers we look at. Yes. Last episode, we looked at Bach and we focused on some of his late works. So, I mean.
0: Well, I think that's also why we look at the Third Symphony, the Eroica, and then the Grossa Fuga, because they're of different time periods. They characterize the composer in a different way, right? Yes. Okay. Certainly. Oh, one thing, with with Misa Solemnis, which is this gigantic mass, he was three years late delivering on the commission, so I think that can make every composer who's been late with the commission feel a little bit better. This was a huge piece, (laughs) and it was performed alongside the Ninth Symphony in 1824, and both of these pieces shocked some of the old wigs. This is a quote from Cherny, but amazed everyone, basically with the power of his imagination and his inventiveness. And another important commission that Beethoven got around this time was to write three string quartets, and hence the late quartets. So Beethoven, after finishing the Ninth Symphony and Mises Alumnus, turned to these, and these are what are called the late quartets. And they basically went far beyond what musicians or audiences were ready to hear at the time. One critic called them indecipherable, uncorrected horrors.
1: That was Louis Spohr. Yes.
0: Yes, it was. And I believe it
2: was directly about the Buga.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: I mean, it's not easy listening. Um...
1: Bohr, of course, just to sidetrack for a second, was a violin pedagogue virtuoso and composer of what we would consider, I guess, the early Romantic period. So there's a serious stylistic gap between his type of music and Beethoven's music. the
0: late quartets were written while beethoven's health is failing and the last major composition he wrote was the substitute finale the allegro for opus 130 because the Grossa fugue was the original ending but then the publishers said what the heck is this you can it was too outside the box basically for the publishers to publish so they encouraged him to write another ending so he wrote this alternate ending which is kind of an interesting occurrence just That there are these two endings to this opus 130. Now, the Grossa Fuga is usually played as the ending. Correct me if I'm wrong,
2: right?
1: Oftentimes, you'll hear the Grossa Fuga as the finale in quartet performances of opus 130. Yeah.
2: Perhaps we'll look at this with the Kramer reading also. And he mentions why performers often choose the Grossa Fuga over the other ending. Yep.
1: Yeah,
0: well, the Grosse Fuga, just to say one more thing, was described by Igor Stravinsky to be an absolutely contemporary piece of music that will be contemporary forever. So it's a
1: fantastic quote.
0: Yeah, that's a, and I mean, you listen to it today and you're like, this is what's out there. Yeah. It's really, you know, stylistically, you can hear that it's from that time. But
1: then just what happens with it is very unexpected. It's absolutely jarring. The dissonances are jarring for any kind of listener, I think.
0: Beethoven died amid a thunderstorm, and somehow that seems very appropriate.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Although he wouldn't have heard it, possibly. (laughs)
0: They're low frequencies. He would have heard them. Oh,
2: you're right. You're right. I'm totally right.
0: Well, Beethoven at least had a a very celebratory funeral. 20,000 people attended. He was definitely celebrated when he died. Franz Schubert, who died the following year, was actually one of the torchbearers. Beethoven was buried in a graveyard outside of Vienna and later moved in 1888 to the Central Friedhof, Friedhof, one of the world's largest cemeteries. So I mean he wasn't thrown in a pauper's grave as was Mozart, which we'll explain in the Mozart episode.
1: And very interesting of course was that when Schubert died, one of his last wishes was to have Beethoven's String Quartet Opus 131 performed for him,
0: and he was buried next to Beethoven.
2: That's right. Yes. Yeah.
0: was an autopsy on Beethoven and he had severe liver damage from his considerable alcohol consumption and there's some dispute about the exact cause of his death. They've cited, well, sclerosis of the liver, syphilis, infectious hepatitis, lead poisoning, and there was this lock of hair clipped from him and there's been some modern day analysis on this and These analyses have led to controversial assertions that Beethoven was accidentally poisoned to death by excessive doses of lead-based treatments administered under instruction from his doctor. Good old Viennese healthcare. Ah, yes. Anyway, that's the frickin' bio on Beethoven, so...
1: You forgot to mention that several of Beethoven's works are on this Voyager space probe record, which was sent out in...
2: I
0: thought it was the Cavatina... Yeah, that's Yes, right. it is the
2: Cavatina. Yes, the movement just before the Grosse Fuga.
1: Yeah, it's a man who did not necessarily have an easy life, but achieved an unprecedented level of stardom for a composer, actually, I think, in the history of Western music.
0: Yeah, has this um sort of pretty much a rock star trajectory.
1: 20, what was it, 20,000 people who came to his funeral or something like that?
2: Yeah. 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 But also in 1805, I think... Rosen was talking about the fact that so many people respected him, but many people didn't like him and thought that music was going the wrong way. It's nice to hear as a composer that music's been going the wrong way for... Going the wrong way for a long time.
1: What struck me about that is it really parallels into this discussion we were having about Bach as this composer who was working in an outdated style or something. And it's almost like Beethoven was working in this classical style while this totally different style was arising around him but at the same time everyone universally recognized him as the respected composer of the era but other composers like hummel
2: who was doing more adventurous things harmonically in a way
1: do you actually think hummel
0: was doing more adventurous things harmonically
2: i'm getting this from the reading
0: because when i listen to hummel i don't hear anything
2: neither do i i totally agree but the the reading was quite clear in saying that
1: because nobody was more adventurous than Beethoven. It's about a different type of style which is being developed based on this connection between continuous filigree of passage work and these distant types of harmonies which are being brought in, whereas Beethoven continued to stick with classical tradition that he inherited from, from Mozart and Haydn.
2: So what I'm meaning by adventuresome harmony, I didn't mean adventuresome really in most senses. I'm just taking it to mean actually lack of resolution, lack of preparation in their dissonances. And looking at, this is why many people consider Beethoven to still be a classical composer, is in the way that he deals with dissonance, prepares and and resolves. I mean, his music, especially his late, I mean, look at the Grosse Fugue, it has incredible dissonances, but everything is prepared and resolved. Yeah. So he's working very much from another system than Hummel or Weber, who decided that The ear was able now, the romantic ear was able to handle dissonance without adequate preparation.
1: Let's, let's just jump in there a bit. And since we're talking about Charles Rosen's classical style, let's talk about what the classical style is.
0: If I just might go back, though, there's this comment from Bernstein saying, that, though, that in the Eroica, that, you know, just this passage where, and then suddenly he changes his key,
2: and it's like a
0: giant walked into the room, and is completely unprepared. So, you know, there are moments
2: where he just... Definitely, but he would use these moments as huge moments, whereas now, perhaps the listener doesn't catch these key changes the same way as Beethoven intended because for him, key changes and unprepared changes were almost catastrophic events to a classical ear.
1: But think about it for a sec, what Rosen says here, these catastrophic sudden changes. In the Eroica, you have this opening melody in E flat, which is just the... Bernstein calls it the bugle call. The key of E-flat is being established with those notes that fit into the chord. And then all of a sudden, this crazy C-sharp shows up.
0: Is it written as a C-sharp or a D-flat?
1: Anyways, it's a note that doesn't fit whatsoever in the material. Mm -hmm. What Rosen says, this note is leading to a resolution to a different harmony which only comes when the opening material comes back in what's known as the recapitulation in the symphony. Mm This thing that he leaves unresolved over the span, but its meaning is a resolution which is delayed. Yeah. We really have to talk about the classical style, though. So what happens here in history? We sort of left off with Bach and his sons and his disconnect between the high Baroque and this new period of music based on gallant and based on entertainment, based on shifting emotions, breaking up this endless perpetual motion of the Baroque music gets broken up into contrasting elements within the same work, right?
2: Yes. This is perhaps also looking at separation of form and content. Some people consider the classical period. And especially the use of abligato, which was not used very much previously, which really changes the perspective of the surface.
0: Things like Alberti bass?
2: Yes, exactly.
1: We'll play you an Alberti bass. So what's important about the Alberti
2: bass?
0: It kind of challenges this hierarchy of the contrapuntal
2: lines, right? Exactly. The interdependency is no longer... There's a blurring. Certainly melody has more primary role, I would say.
1: Yeah, music becomes much more focused on melody with accompaniment. Let's say vertical, if you will, than having interjecting horizontal voices, as in the high baroque. Which are all independent and all equal, let's say. Would this be more homophonic then? Yeah. And last time we described this period as the black hole of music history or something like that. (laughs) Or Graham, (laughs) you said that?
0: I said that. I don't think it made it into the episode. It's in the outtakes.
1: I love what Charles Rosen says. He says, a style is a mode of understanding. And what style does is it reconciles conflicting forces of a time period. And then he talks about how these composers, the very ones that we consigned to the black hole, had a sort of imperfect understanding of what was going on in their time. And they were, of course, experimenting with new forms, but they couldn't yet master those new types of forms, like this kind of contrasting elements within one piece and how to hold them together. And at the same time, they would hold on to kind of irrelevant habits, like having these endless sequences from the Baroque, which didn't make sense in the new style. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder
0: if we're... In contemporary music now, if we sort started doing the same thing with certain things too, it's an interesting angle to look at music today as well. When you're like, oh, maybe there's vestiges of things from modernism or something. Maybe it's just such a completely different time period that you can't
2: actually compare the two. I don't know. I think this is actually a good question that composers are asking themselves. Because some, certainly in the 1950s... Oh, we're thinking that any sort of past was unacceptable in music.
1: That's going to come back with a vengeance in a future episode.
0: I like how Rosen goes into this, the anonymous style of an age versus the the more specific definition of a style. It reminds me of, of just, okay, to give an example that's maybe not classical, the umbrella term alternative or something like this versus, you know, a very specific stylistic definition. You know, when you burn an MP3, sometimes you get these... What style is it in? And you're like, all these options come up that are just absurd, like calypso, disco, funk. And you're like, that is so specific. And I think you can (laughs) look at style, the definition of style, how that emerges. That's kind of what Rosen is getting at. And it often emerges from, A, a sort of historical need, but also style being sort of defined by those who, in a way, exist outside of the style.
1: Because they're shaping it into their own rules and into their own patterns or they're taking it in a new direction or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, so you have to look at Beethoven defining a certain period and the style of that time, but he was unusual.
1: Highly unusual. But let's look at that style of the time. So what happens? What do we get? We get this importance of What you talked about earlier, modulation of harmony, this idea that you have a home key and then you go to the away key, which you go into that key and then you bring back the home key, this kind of span of modulation over the entirety of a piece, rather than in the high baroque where you just had moving around between keys and you would come back to the end eventually. There was this idea that you could make long scale changes of harmonies in a piece. And this is a kind of device in order to tie a piece together despite the fact that you're breaking things into smaller chunks of phrases and contrasting emotions, contrasting sections, to tie it all together as a whole, where you've destroyed this continuous line of the high baroque. to isolate phrases and articulate them through this structure.
2: generalizing, and Rosen also thinks that this is problematic. But by the time, early 19th century, after mid-19th century, I guess, after Czerny, they started to realize exactly what a sonata form was. Yeah, 1840. Being that they were two contrasting themes often that would go through some sort of development in between the two. So taking, what is it, thesis, antithesis.
1: They used to call it the masculine theme followed by the feminine yes. theme or however it was. Mm -hmm. Exactly, As Rosen very clearly points out, you get all of this theory about classical forms in the 19th century and later, a lot of it doesn't fit with the actual reality of the music once you dig into it. The only important thing that you'll notice about the form of the music is the fact that the spanned structure of what we have come to call the sonata form is about having this tension of harmony being an outgrowth from the home key to another key and resolving that tension back to the home key. That's basically the only primal element that you can identify through all of these works.
2: It is a large ABA in a way. So you have A moving to B, moving to A, which is another form that we're using a lot in inner movements. But this is uh, sonata form was much more developed form, I would say, coming from ABA idea.
1: What Rosen calls it so wonderfully is a symmetry which is withheld and then granted. And that's exactly that example that I was just citing from the Eroica of this crazy note that's out of place at the beginning in the opening theme, which suddenly makes sense in the context of when the theme comes back.
0: That's an interesting note. We could talk a lot about that note from a lot of different angles. I like what Rosen mentions, two things about sonata style, because for one, I I totally agree with the way he has kind of a a non-reverential attitude towards sonata form. He calls it a musical grammar that was well known among audiences and among composers. It didn't come out of thin air, it was just happening, and people were, like, this idea of, of modulating up a fifth it was just part of what people did but then the idea was also to kind of align that with the drama of the music and the logic of that convention so mozart and haydn and beethoven were, were using that to elevate the effect of their music
1: certainly This tonic dominant thing is, of course, the basis of our Western tonality. So it's certainly there in the Baroque, but as you can see in Baroque pieces, the home key is only really established usually as the very finale or the very end of a piece. So you have this endless working out, this unfolding of music uh, kind of trickles along until you get then the dominant, then back to the tonic, and then you're done. Whereas in the classical, you're going from the tonic and then establishing this dominant, or this away key, and then you come back and you reestablish the home key. So you're withholding this resolution over a time span and you're making it into a larger symmetrical kind of structure. You're giving it a larger symmetry. It's
0: like getting in a boat, sailing across the ocean, discovering a new land, and then coming back and
2: telling people about it. And having your life be changed by the fact that you've gone to the new land, but you yourself are physically the same and your land is physically quite similar. Something else that might mention, of course, is this idea of relation of fifths, which is the tonic dominant. It goes all the way back to Pythagoras and his love for fifths.
0: There's probably somebody in China and India
2: that I went back to before, too. This, very true. It is one of the most simple relationships in music, and perhaps even had some sort of quasi-religious significance for early composers.
0: Or present composers. Or me. present composers, <laughs> like yes. Thinking Young's of Young's perfect fifth for three days or whatever it is. I don't know. Partial in the overtone series? That's the third partial.
1: It's the over-examined partial, this one. Yes, it's the over-examined yes. partial. It's not just in Western classical music as well. Look at the tetrachord in Turkish music. They divide it on the fifth, so... They have like one okay. half and then the other half above there seems to be some sort of biological resonance about this tonic dominant type of thing
0: it's a good one you can't go wrong i mean look exactly look at the power chords on guitar
3: <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you for listening to part one of our Beethoven episode on the Unexamined Partial. Please be sure to join us for part two, where we have lots of great discussion on Beethoven and philosophy, Beethoven and improvisation, and Beethoven in our culture generally.